Welcome to a new episode of The Afterward, our series of conversations with our favorite authors on books, reading, and the church. Our guest today is Jonty Rhodes, who's the head pastor of Christ Church, a congregation of the International Presbyterian Church in Leeds, England. Jonty has spent the last 10 years or so uh, planting churches around the UK, uh, and he's the author of the just-released Man of Sorrows, King of Glory. And uh, this, is, this is really one of our favorite kinds of books, which takes foundational uh, but perhaps neglected aspects of the Reformed faith and applies them to our lives today in ways that are fresh and devotional and understandable. Uh, Nancy Guthrie says this about it. She says, Man of Sorrows, King of Glory is rich without being dense, theological without being stuffy, and com- corrective without being combative. Uh, and right now you can pick up a copy of this on our website, wtsbooks.com, uh, and it's half price until July 8th when that sale ends. Uh, so with that, uh, by way of introduction, let me hand it over to Johnny and Jonty with a, a question for both of you. One of the taglines here at the Westminster Bookstore is Biblically Faithful Books, Kindergarten through MDiv. And we love those, those short board books uh, that share the gospel with our youngest children on the one hand. Uh, and on the other hand, we do love those 700-page uh, dense theological works that uh, take your whole lifetime uh, to wade through. But I've heard from some some publishing friends of mine uh, that perhaps the UK market doesn't have as much of an, an appetite for those those bigger sized books, and that uh, perhaps the average churchgoer um, doesn't have as much desire to read that type of book. Uh, what would you guys say to that? Uh, do you think there's a difference between the reading habits uh, in the US compared to the UK? Johnny? Well, Josiah, I think you're about to find two British ministers become quite defensive for their tribe. Uh, <laughs> after all, the banner of truth arose in the UK, and those are meaty, hefty theological books. So I'm not sure I would agree with the um, sort of uh, stereotype that maybe some publishers in the States have given you. I think people in the UK, Christians, are interested in in meaty theology. Perhaps maybe it's just that we don't produce as much over in the UK <clears throat> as far as authors go. And maybe publishers, are, it's just not as big a volume compared to the States. But I think there is a hunger, certainly in the IPC churches and some of the more Reformed Baptist churches for hefty theological books and for reading them. Uh, perhaps another aspect of it is that there's, a, I think, a more healthy focus on evangelism in the UK and UK churches. And so maybe the case of we, we produce a lot of books that are written at a very simple level for the unbeliever so that they can understand the gospel at a very basic level. So maybe that's where the, the comments coming from. I don't know. What, what do you think, John D? Yeah, well, when I, um, when I wrote my first book, it was, it was published in English first, uh, in England first by IVP. Uh, but when it was taken to America, they renamed it Covenants Made Simple, uh, which was kind of implying it needed some dumbing down for the Americans. So, yeah, like you, Johnny, I'll uh, I'll defend the UK a little bit. Um, I, I, I think it's probably fair to say there is a strain of anti-intellectualism in at least part of conservative evangelicalism, uh, the, the part that I've come from, which 
which perhaps has led us away from um, or, or separated doctrine and devotion, uh, as if um, rich devotion doesn't rely on doctrinal thinking, or perhaps more commonly that deep doctrinal thinking doesn't lead to devotion. Um, so I think there there is some truth there. I couldn't say whether that's more true of the UK than than the USA because I don't know the US context, but um, I think that, that is something I've, I've noticed a slight fear that if you if you start thinking too hard. Uh, then it then it's just head knowledge and takes you away from the the real love of Christ. It reminds me of that uh, C.S. Lewis quote where he said that he found more devotional value in, in a big thick book of systematic theology with his pipe in his mouth and a pencil in his hand <laughs> uh, than he did, you know, reading some of the more uh, general devotional works. Um, yeah, yeah, another good old Irishman. Yeah, exactly. Got to get it in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, well, John Day, it's good to have you on uh, the afterward, this conversation about books, reading in the church. Um, obviously, I know you well. You're a good friend from uh, back in the UK, and we're both ordained uh, in the same denomination, the International Presbyterian Church. Um, but many of our American listeners wouldn't have heard of you, or if they have, they don't know much about you. So tell us a wee bit about your background and your family? Sure. Uh, I'm married to Georgina. We've got four kids, uh, the eldest of whom is seven and the youngest just two. Uh, we've, we've another way on the way in August, God willing. Um, so yeah, busy home life. Uh, I'm a, a minister, church planter in uh, the IPC, the International Presbyterian Church. And at the moment I'm in Leeds in the north of England. Um, we are, what are we, three and a half years into a church plant uh, there. Before that, I was seven years in Derby, which is a slightly smaller English city. Uh, that was, again, a church plant, about seven years there for a church plant. Um, and Derby was the, the beginning of my, my Presbyterian journey. I've not grown up uh, Presbyterian, not grown up Christian, really. Um, so uh, IPC for me came on the scene in uh, about 2015, something like that. Okay, so you weren't brought up in a Christian family, so tell us how you came to faith in Christ. Yeah, I probably ought to qualify that a little bit. I was brought up going to Sunday school, um, taken along to the little village Anglican church. I grew up in rural Dorset, um, a real kind of farming community in the south of England. And it was a time when everybody went to church, just, you know, Sunday morning, you put on your best jumper, your smart trousers and went and sat there. Um, but it was far from evangelical. And I, I'd have said I was a Christian, but... I'd have had no understanding at all, really. Um, I remember, to my, <laughs> to my embarrassment, I remember when I left my first school, so I'd have been about 12, and we were all given Bibles in assembly. Uh, and the kind of tradition was you got your friends to sign their name because you're going off to different schools. And a teacher who was, a, who was an evangelical, um, I now realise, although I didn't at the time, uh, wrote in there, I can't remember exactly what verse, but it, it was I think it was one of Isaiah's prophecies of Christ, um, you know, tender and gentle. I can't remember exactly what it was. But it was a beautiful description of Christ. But I had no idea at the time that it was a prophecy about Jesus. And I just thought, oh, that's a lovely thing to write about me. Um, so I, you know, that was my level of understanding of the gospel at that time, <laughs> applying scriptures about, you know, the saviour to myself. So it wasn't really, I went to boarding school, classic English boarding school, uh, the kind of thing you, you kind of see in movies in the US, I guess. And it was there, amazingly, I had a, a an evangelical Christian as my my tutor. Um, you know, each each member of staff at the school probably had about eight or nine boys to look after. I was with this guy Richard. Uh, he was a Christian. Invited me along to the 
the Christian meeting, and it was through that and um, summer camps uh, that I uh, I came to faith. Okay, that's great. So I think this is a first for the afterward to have some of the uh, upper echelons of British society <laughs> on the show, the aristocracy. <laughs> Good, good to have you on, John Day, for that purpose alone. Um, what, what took you from, you know, becoming a Christian uh, into Christian ministry and wanting to study? I know you studied at Oak Hill College in London. Yeah. What, what, how did that transition come about? Yeah, I, so I, you know, I studied history as an undergrad. And after leaving university, well, I taught Latin for one year. That's my one, my one year of real life work. Um, on the mean streets of Norfolk. But um, after that, I went to work for a church, thinking it would just be a year. I was doing youth work, children's groups, um, beginning, I probably preached four or five times in the year. Uh, that was an Anglican church, an evangelical Anglican church. Uh, and the minister there invited me to stay on for a second year, uh, and then two turned into four. And it was really his encouragement that led me to, to think about ministry longer term. I think at that stage, I knew I wasn't an Anglican. I knew I wasn't a Baptist, but I didn't really know what I was. Um, so when I went off to Oak Hill, I went funded by this this Anglican church, but not as an Anglican, um, which was you know, amazingly generous of them, really, um, because they were forking out tens of thousands of pounds for um, well, essentially for, for no net gain for themselves. Um, but I also, to be honest, I, I look back and I think I actually went in too young and and not not thoughtfully enough. Like, as you know, Johnny, there's a a kind of strain of conservative evangelicalism in England that is, uh, is is great in many ways, and I owe a lot too. But is is quite uh, well, just a bit slapdash when it comes to going into ministry. I think so. Um, I was told, my, my wife was told as well at university, you know, more or less, if you are a well-educated, you know, university-educated, um, thoughtful guy who is living a basically moral life, you ought to go into ministry. Um, you need a good excuse not to. So there's no sense of calling that was dismissed as something for a, the charismatics or a strange thing for the mystics, the Welsh or whatever, um, the Northern Irish, the Scots, you know, but not for us English people. And, um, <laughs> you know, you, you had to explain why you weren't going in if you had a, more or less, if you had a pulse and you were Christian and, and living a vaguely godly life. So I look back with shame to us and think I went in far too casually um, without the kind of reflection and, yeah, a sense of calling that I'd, I'd want to see in folk, folk today. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, you've you've gone from being in seminary to into a call. So uh, even though you've been honest there about uh, maybe going in too early in the Lord's providence, it's still where he's called you as a minister. Yeah. And you know, since then, you've clearly had a, an inner, an internal and an external call. But um, what what convinced you to become a Presbyterian? It was, it was slow, really. It was, again, in honesty, it was, <laughs> to begin with, it was a process of beginning to work out what I'm not. Um, so I, I, I realised I wasn't an, an Anglican, so that the strength of the conservative evangelical church in England is really in uh, Anglicanism and in uh, the FIC, essentially a kind of network of independent Baptist churches. They would each have or oh, I don't know, 700 or so congregations, something like that. Um, but I knew I wasn't a Baptist. I knew I wasn't an independent. Um, I worked out during Oak Hill that I was a reformed Peter Baptist, but I'd, I'd never met a Presbyterian. Mm. Um, I, I, I mean, even at Bible College, even at seminary, if you can believe it, I, 
you know, I, I, I knew Presbyterians existed, but I, I couldn't have told you what they were. And I had, I'd never met one. So it was, it was having, having come out the other end, I went back and did um, three years working in the, in the church of England again, um, sort of unofficially the bishop said he'd close his eyes and look the other way and <laughs> let me get on with it. Um, but it was over that time I started reading um, Influence of America mm. and came across some of the guys, again, Johnny, you know well, some of the guys in the IPC. Um, I started just just meeting up with them. And because around 2008, I think it was, that Anglican church asked me to lead a church plant, um, but said, you, you'll have to decide the, <laughs> the ecclesiology. Um, I knew I had to, to nail my colours to the mast. So it was, yeah, I was through reading, meeting other guys in the IPC um, that I finally uh, came, came to the light. You came home. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't have the kind of, the advantage you've got of having an elder brother just to tell you what to do. I never had that. So your transition from being an independent <laughs> Baptist to a, a Presbyterian, I, yeah. Yeah, or having an older brother that you have your hand up his back, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, that's great. That's great. And looking back on your time at Oak Hill, and you've planted a church in Derby seven years there, and now three and a half into the church plant in Leeds. What do you think that you can't learn at seminary? Obviously, seminary or college, as we call it in the UK, uh, is a great training ground. It's it's you know necessary uh, in many respects, but it's not sufficient. So, what what do you think that? you can't learn at seminary that you just learn on the job in the job i suppose it's a bit like you know seminary you, you can you can stop the store cupboard you know stop the kitchen with all the kind of things you need but it's only when you it's only when the kids arrive you learn how to cook and and serve the food so i think you know okay was great for well teaching all the things that that seminaries teach you but coming out the other end and learning how to communicate that um, both in preaching, but also it's, I think probably even harder just in the, in the pastoral work, the counseling, um, you know, you can read all the books you like about marriage or whatever, but until you're sat with a couple whose marriage is falling apart, you know, no classroom in the world can teach you how to deal with that really. Um, so it's, yeah, it's that move from, from all the, the knowledge you've got stored up to, to how you actually deal with, with real flesh and bones, um, that's what they, you know. It's often a critique of guys who just popped out of college, isn't it? Their preaching is is very sound, very clear, um, but but missing the target. You know, kind of like a machine gun spraying everywhere, but not hitting hitting home because they just not had the time to to know who they're preaching to, get get used to the congregation. Um, but yeah, you teach. You tell me. You're you're the one who teaches week in week out. Yeah, but I'm very glad I did two years in ministry before I came because I think it would have been a bit of a fraud trying to train people for ministry, but never having done any myself. You know, I always find it strange people who go from PhD from under from MDiv to PhD to to you know to teaching at a seminary, training men for ministry, but they've never been a minister. So I'm thankful for that, and and I agree. I think you don't really uh, you think you know theology and doctrine and how to preach until every week you have to do it week in week out um yeah. I remember my first three four months as the associate at cambridge presbyterian finding my bucket was empty of all illustrations all analogy yeah. a sermon i'd used up everything that i'd ever known and i was <laughs> i was <laughs> each week phoning 
people like Paul Levy trying to find an illustration for something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that life experience, isn't it? Learning on the job that uh, you can't really get at seminary. I, I often think seminary is like the first four years of training and then your first internship or assistant minister, associate minister is really the next phase of training to become a minister. Obviously, you can still be ordained, but when you yeah. really hit your groove is a couple of years into that assistantship. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you want to just briefly talk about the IPC? Um, you're part of this Presbyterian denomination. You say you didn't know a Presbyterian when you went to Oak Hill, but now you're part of this um, yeah. denomination uh, that I'm ordained in as well, which we, we love very much with all its quirks. Um, uh, just share with folk what it is and and how we actually are trying to train guys coming out of seminary, giving them internships or assistant minister positions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first uh, the first Presbyterian Church service I ever went to, I was leading. I was the <laughs> ordained minister leading the service. <laughs> that that gives you an indication of how kind of cowboy it was. But um, yeah, I mean, it, in some ways, the nomination's been going a while. It, Francis Schaefer. Um, set it up in, he came over after the Second World War, was sent over to uh, to bring a report back to the States on the state of the, the church in Europe. Uh, and during that time, to cut a long story short, he got the bug for, you know, for coming back and working over here. So it, it began, IPC, International Presbyterian Church, began in the, uh, in the 50s um, out in, uh, in Switzerland, I think the first congregation was, maybe Italy first, then Switzerland, I can't remember, but up in the Alps. Um, but his vision of a you know church without borders that was um, teaching the, the reformed faith um, and trying to hold to the, the the purity of the church, I think those three things that he he particularly emphasised in the early days, you know, is a is a is a good one and one we've 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 tried to hold to. Um, but really, in England, you know, for a long time there were what were there two congregations, three congregations um, for most of the sort of sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, even. And it's only in the last 10, 15 years that that's grown to whatever we are, about a dozen now across England and Scotland. Um, there are also Korean speaking churches in the UK um, and some in uh, some more on the continent, some more in, in uh, South Korea itself. But in terms of kind of English speaking Presbyterian, I think we're about a dozen churches. Um, I mean, the, the healthy side of that is that you've, you've got to be convictionally Presbyterian to, to join. You're not going to tumble into it or just stumble in because that's where there's a vacancy you're probably gonna to have to plant um, if you're a minister coming in and so we try to as you say we try to develop a a more robust way of training the next generation than you know than i ever had certainly and, and maybe even yourself um so often we'll have guys who'll come and work as interns for a couple of years maybe just out of university kind of young guys trying to get a taste for things trying to convince them of the, the reformed faith and presbyterian ecclesiology uh, we then send them to college so again, most guys at the moment, I think, are still coming to the States. Um, bizarrely, it's often cheaper for them to study in the US at a, a Winster or a, uh, what's that other place? Um, uh, uh, ATA, RTA, RTA? That's the one, RTS. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're only allowed to use the acronym. We're not allowed to use the full title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so guys will study there three or four years, come back citizenship for them to plant more or less um which you know it is difficult it means that some men who'd be great to fill pulpits if they were empty just can't find a place in the denomination um but it does mean that that focus on mission is is unavoidable mm -hmm. 
and so we, we've got a god willing a bit of a plan to keep planting over the next few years and over the last few years we've planted you know more or less a congregation every year somewhere else in the in the country mm. yeah it's 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 been exciting to be a part of it even though i'm at a distance now it's still um denomination that uh, i think's got real potential and um, yeah. exciting to see even from afar how it's continuing to be blessed by god and to grow so okay so let's let's get into one of your books speaking about presbyterianism uh covenants made simple or or the uh the british title was reading uh, the lost ark uh, with yeah. a, an allusion to indiana jones and the readers of the lost ark uh, why did you decide to write a book about covenants? Yeah, in some ways, I, I don't know if you find this with your own writing, but you know, the little I have written, it's been first of all about educating myself more than more than anyone else. So, I, you know, I see these blind spots in my own theological education and my own reading, and 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 trying to, I suppose, read myself clear, and then end up wanting to teach it at church. So, um, that book began in, as a series. Um, it was a midweek teaching series, I think, at, at Derby. Um, and I, I realised that I'd been taught almost no covenant theology, even though by this stage I'd been in evangelical churches for what, 15 years, probably. Um, but just almost nothing, um, almost nothing on, on the covenants, which seems probably bizarre to many of your listeners, but it's, it's just a reality over here. The, the, the idea of covenant theology is... is um, which is, I think, be fair to say, it's pretty much neglected in, in conservative evangelicalism in, in in lots of the UK, at least, or lots of England. That's probably unfair to say the UK. I'm sure the Scots and the Northern Irish are more on the ball. Um, and so having taught it as a, a midweek series, this book on covenant theology, um, I I was struggling to find something simple enough to, to give to congregation members, you know, as an introduction, a, you know, a primer um, that, that could be read by someone who'd never even come across the you know, the phrase before so that and that's that was the origin of the book um yeah maybe this goes back to josiah's first question you know about meaty books maybe that's where it's coming from you know american christianity and certainly presbyterianism has had a very strong evangelicalism has had a perhaps a better stronger appreciation for the covenant um than maybe we have because presbyterianism has been um so small and recent yeah. century or so in in the uk um i remember a comment that john woodhouse made i studied at more colleges you know and we were sitting in old testament uh, overview first year and my friend dinesh who's from singapore asked him a question he says um i've noticed that you've been teaching this course you, you haven't really structured it around covenant it's more been just like the story of the Old Testament or by overviews of each book. Can I ask why you haven't really looked at Covenant? And uh, Woodhouse paused for a moment and then said, well, because it's not really a big deal, is it, in the Bible? Okay. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting was he had actually structured everything around promise, promise and fulfillment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then... Years later, it dawned on me this conversation or this comment in class, and I, I then went up. Thought, well, what's the Hebrew for promise? Um, <laughs> the word promise occur in the Old Testament, and then I realised that there is no Hebrew word for promise. Yeah, it's the phrase "kasher dever," just as he said. So you know, this here was this Old Testament theology being taught, which was very good. I, I learned yeah. a lot more, but 
it just was bereft of any theological substructure. And then berit, the covenant, the word for covenant is used 285 times in the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, so it is actually a concept that's quite prominent. Um, yeah. We've got a similar thing, I think, with um, evangelicals always wanting to talk about a relationship with God. You know, no one's got any problem at all about speaking about, you know, do you have a relationship with God? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? But the same people then get very uppity if you start talking about covenants. Uh, but it's the same point again, isn't it? You know, what, what is the Bible's term for your relationship with God? Well, it's a covenant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, we, yeah, we do our Bible overviews and our, it's often very kingdom focused, um, one way or another, story of a kingdom, that kind of thing. But then it's it's not, um, covenant is almost viewed with suspicion, I think, in, in yeah. a little moment. Yeah. And, you know, Graham Goldsworthy's works, which I've appreciated and has been yeah. by, in the, in the good parts of it, is the, the, the kingdom is the, the story of the Bible. I think that's right. Ritterboss and Bavink and Voss would all agree with that. Um, but they, they had a covenantal structure to the story. And, and it's interesting that Goldsworthy only picks up on covenant from Genesis 12, doesn't really deal with covenant of works, doesn't think yeah. there was one, doesn't deal with the covenant in Genesis 3.15, doesn't deal with the covenant with Noah, just sort of right really picks the story up at chapter two Genesis. And it, I think that shows because if you don't begin where covenant really begins in the garden with the work covenant works and then the covenant of grace with the promise to Eve, you sort of are, aren't really going to get the importance of the structure right from the beginning. You know. Um, yeah, I suspect that ties into the, the slight lack of interest in systematic theology as well. You know, mm -hmm. If you do the you can do very good Bible overviews, can't you, where you tell the story and what happened. And but, but covenant, and part of the reason I wanted to write the book actually was covenant also gives shape to your ecclesiology, your understanding of the sacraments, um, mm. your understanding of the atonement. You know, who, who is it? What's the relationship between Christ and those he died for? Um, mm. And if you're in a world that is suspicious of those kind of systematic questions, or, or at least sees them as very secondary, um, then the, the temptation is always to go to the sort of high level story way of explaining scripture because then you can duck the, the doctrinal ones. Yeah. So in that book, Covenants Made Simple, um, you obviously go through the various covenants, covenant of works, and then the covenant of grace with its various administrations or expressions or manifestations at the different epochs of redemptive history. Do you want to just very briefly explain what you mean by the covenant of grace and how it functions in the Bible story? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, the, you know, as I said earlier, it's uh, if you were trying to define covenant in a way that covered every single use of the word covenant in the Bible, you'd, you'd struggle a little bit, wouldn't you? If you've got Job making a covenant with his eyes and you're going to end up with something very vague, like a relationship or something like that. But mm. when we talk about the covenant of grace as a, as a theological term, uh, we're talking about the way that God has bound himself uh, in promise to his people. Um, and you see that the, the, the form, the relationship, relationship that that relationship takes um uh, has it has a similar pattern all the way through scripture from the fall onwards at least this saving plan of god so you see god asking uh, requiring faith you know in faith in his promises faith ultimately in the mediator in christ uh, you see what he promises the blessings he promises um uh, to his people which are summed up in many ways by the kingdom and the kingdom is the blessing that you, you receive isn't it um you see the curses being cut off uh, if you if you break this covenant 
Uh, and ultimately, that 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 uh, that promise that begins, as you say, in Genesis three, when the the promise of the serpent crusher comes, is it's, it's the gospel promise. Um, you know, Paul can refer to what what um, to, to Abraham's covenant as the gospel in Galatians three, can't he? The gospel was preached to Abraham, so it is that that gospel that is preached that forms the people and is shaped by this covenant relationship, which then grows like a tree all the way through the Old Testament and comes to, to you know comes to full flower in the new. Um, but in essence is that it is the same gospel, the same relationship. Um, and therefore is forming the, the same people. It's forming one people, the one church of God from, um, you know, from Adam and Eve through to, through to us. Yeah. You use the illustration there of the tree and, um, you know, Voss uses that in his um, essay on, the idea of biblical theology he keeps you referring to the word organic this organic development yeah. of revelation and i think that's the key thing it's not these distinct covenants in the old testament it's the one covenant of grace yeah. interest the hebrew word berit it's never it never occurs in the plural in the bible it's always the singular and it, i think it's conveying that there is really one covenant ultimately but it, it goes through these organic developments like from seed to little shoot with yeah to a small tree with Abraham to the big trunk with Israel and then the branches with David and then the full flower with uh, Christ coming um, uh, what books influenced you on covenant to write that one yeah um, I mean I suppose two kind of eras really um, in terms of modern things um, I suppose the, the first thing that got me going on it was uh, O. Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants, um, which was, I think, the first thing I'd, I'd read on Covenant full stop. And the first time I began to see exactly what you've been talking about, the, the idea of the unity of the covenants throughout scriptures. Um, but to dig deeper, a few, a few other modern things, some of um, Mike Horton's uh, stuff, Meredith Klein's, although I'd, I'd perhaps differ from on a couple of things on the Mosaic Covenant in particular. But really, after that, it was a case of going, you know, going further back and getting to the, the Puritans. And so for a while, I was I was trying to read, you know, Boston and Gillespie and all these guys to to, to see what my what my heritage was, um, particularly if I was heading in towards Presbyterianism. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I've often found that, yeah, it's going back there that, that actually helps you get clearer um, than, than even some of the modern stuff. Yeah. So that was your first book. And uh, then you... Uh unwisely or wisely decide to try another one uh it's coming out in june uh with crossway called man of sorrows king of glory uh, the subtitle is uh, what the humiliation and exaltation of jesus means for us um so it's a bit like a, a jesus made simple is it or is it not <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't pitch like this to crossway but if the covenants book is Chapter seven of the Westminster Confession made simple. Then uh, this one's chapter eight, really. That you know the work, person work of Christ, mm. um, twofold state, threefold office. Yeah, and so tell us why why did you decide to write a book about Jesus's person and work? Yeah, I think we have. You there, Chandi? Yeah, I'm back. There you go. Sorry, I don't know what happened there, but you, you froze. Okay, did you hear my question? 
No. Okay. Right so, wh- wh- why did you decide to write a book about Jesus's person and work? Yeah. The, the genesis actually came in. I was having a conversation with uh, Brian Salter. He's he's pastor of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, and we we were just walking on the street in Leeds, talking about preaching and particularly about our Old Testament sermons and the the danger that they all end up sounding the same. Uh, you know, you're an Old Testament professor, so you can. You can speak more on this, but you kind of know how it goes where, you know, you're preaching, you preach the text, you explain what's going on in the story. And then you think, oh, I've got to speak about Jesus. And so somehow the last five minutes of every sermon, you, you get out your crowbar tool and end up speaking probably about penal substitution. Uh, and, um, you know, that's your that's your big finale. And Brian made the offhand comment that it that he thinks in part that's because we haven't appreciated the richness of Christ's work as prophet, priest and king. So we feel in a, in a right desire to be, to be you know, cross-centred and Christ-centred and you know, passage like 1 Corinthians, you know, resolve to know nothing with you apart from Christ crucified. We, we think that means um, that all you can speak about to be faithful is the cross. And frankly, if you're going to speak about the cross, the only thing you can speak about is penal substitution atonement if you're going to be properly kind of robustly um, uh, reformed or sound. And I think Brian made that comment as thinking nothing of it, but it, it just made me think afterwards and reflect on my own ministry and and realise that I, although I was in a tradition that that, that rightly um, had spent a lot of time defending penal substitution, you know, there are various attacks on it um, over here in, in the UK, as I'm sure there are in the US as well. But it's a, a danger that that I and, and perhaps others had, had therefore become a, a bit narrow. You know, I sort of used the illustration before of if you think of a sort of great painting, um, the Haywain or something, you know, turn as the Haywain, and you, if all you're looking at is the thing in the middle, you know, the wagon in the middle, um, and you're missing the rest of the canvas, well, you, you're missing out. So we, yes, of course, Christ's death is at the centre of the gospel, and I think penal substitution atonement is central is, and essential to that. But but there is more, <laughs> and again, you don't have to go back too far, do you, to see that that in um, you know in our forefathers and their preaching, their writing, this idea that you're to deal with Christ as prophet, priest, and king, um, and and I think particularly lacking perhaps uh, again a focus on his work, his ongoing work in his exaltation, not just his work in in what's been known as his humiliation, you know, his his earthly life. Um, so yeah, wanting wanting a richer canvas, I suppose, to set the, the cross in and a a richer um, a richer Jesus. I'd yeah. call it the whole Christ if Sinclair hadn't nicked the title first, but. Uh, I prefer Sinclair on all things. He clearly got wind of it at ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thoughts always do. Always do that to the English. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've spoken there about the humiliation of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the three offices of Christ: prophet, priest, king. Did you come up with this? Where did this come from? You know uh, the. No. Football, they invented rugby, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wrote wrote the Westminster Confession, then ignored it for four hundred years. Um, yeah. yeah, no, uh, you'll have to. You you can tell me on the history of it. I I don't know if you find this when you you, know, you you study something for a while, don't you, or you write, and for a while, you know, everything's at the fingertips because that's what you're studying. And then you know, I, I finished the book a year or so ago, and then it all goes out of your mind. But um, you you know, throughout the history of the church. I mean, clearly people pick up on the fact that Jesus is a prophet, a priest and a king because, you know, there's a New Testament terms. 
in terms of you know you, you can see hints of it um i think even in eusebius and you know some of the really early stuff but um it comes to its i suppose clearest fruition at the, at the reformation um often, you know, i think luther would would sort of push together prophet and king sometimes and you know, but by the time you get to certainly to the confession and you know, the, the writing of calvin um as well um this idea of a threefold office so the office he's the mediator the messiah but a threefold aspect to it that as the anointed one um he he fulfills those three old testament offices or the great offices of prophet priest and king you know is, is there very clearly in well, in the institutes is there in the, the confession isn't it chapter eight of the confession it's there in heidelberg um so yeah not not entirely unique to uh, ipc or english public school boys yeah I think that's that's what I like about your book. You're basically you're trying to make um, contemporary and relevant for the church today something that's been there all through church history and something yeah. that was crystallized in Calvin and the post Reformation uh, dogmaticians that there was this really rich perspective that Christ as the Son of God is the one mediator and out of that mediator mediatorial role he functions in these three offices of prophet priest king but then I think it's the Heidelberg Catechism that probably puts it most clearly, and and the Westminster Confession that he has these two states: the state of humiliation, exaltation. Yeah. Um, I'm teaching Old Testament at the minute in uh, one and two Samuel, one and two Kings, and I've been trying to show the students that David is a mini Messiah who, after he's anointed king in one Samuel 16, Saul remains king, but David is really the true king. But David goes through this humiliation. For the rest of one Samuel, and only in huh. two Samuel does he experience exaltation. So David himself, is, you know, experiences these two states of humiliation and exaltation, and he does so as a prophet. He he speaks God's word. He writes psalms. Yeah. He does it as a priest. He dances before the ark as it comes in to Jerusalem. He's all his sons are priests. And obviously then as a king, he's the king. So you see it in these Old Testament figures of this prophet, priest, king, you know, functioning as God's holy covenant representative. I think what it's done for me in teaching it and having to research it, it really enriches your view of Christ. Mm. Uh, as you say, I think if you just view Christ as someone who provides penal substitutionary atonement, you, you're really just focusing on his office as priest, sacrifice and priest. Yeah. And it's a narrow view of Christ. Uh, I call it an anemic view of Christ. And you miss the prophet. He began his ministry. He came preaching, says Mark. And then you yeah. miss that he's a king. And on the cross, he's wearing a crown. And uh, he's um, fulfilling those offices. So what what, what do you think? Um, well, well, let me actually speak with the structure of your book. Uh, you have three main sections. Um get to them uh the part one uh three parts of the book the journey of the son of god part one where you deal with um the whole christ the person of christ and then part two the to the far country uh christ humiliation and then to the father's right hand christ exaltation it's really got a nice sort of story thread to it um don't know where you got that from but uh the journey of the son of god to the far country and then back to the father's right hand um do you want to talk us through that structure and, and your titles i see for each chapter 
are lines from Man of Sorrows. What a name. Yeah. So, yeah, do you want to explain the structure of your book in that regard? Sure. I mean, I'd structured it that way um, before I came up with the titles. Uh, as you, you may know, I got the, the titles from the same place you get most of your work from, which is uh, your elder brother. So he uh, he came up with those sort of, um, not the chapter titles, I'd already done the Philip Bliss stuff, but the uh, the allusions to Bart. So if anyone's worried that it's Bartian, um, <laughs> just pin it all on uh, Dr. David Gibson. Um, the content is not Bartian, I can promise. Um, yeah, I, I suppose it was, it was really trying to walk people through um, seeing, so that, that first section, who is Jesus? Um, uh, the incarnation, um, how, you know, how, how does that work as best you can <laughs> explain the mystery or describe the mystery might be a better way of putting it. Um, I think, again, in that first section that my suspicion is that as evangelicals were better on defending Jesus as God, you know, the full divinity of Christ, than actually we are on seeing his true humanity, uh, which might seem strange. But I, I again, just just observation on the ground rather than from any sort of deep theological reading. But I. I I wonder if we're so sort of g'd up to make sure we defend the divinity of Christ that we we end up toning down his humanity um, in some way. So that, that first section is trying to just describe what it means for for the Son of God to become incarnate, um, and also it lays the ground. You know, what are these three or this threefold office? What are the the states of humiliation and exaltation? And then the, the middle third of the book is tracing Jesus' work as prophet, priest, and king in his humiliation. Um, Again, I you know we want to rush to the cross, don't we? Um, but I, I hope the book will just help people pause a little bit and, and, and track with the journey. You know, Jesus wasn't born and then you know taken from the manger and crucified. You know, there's a reason that he uh, was a reason he spent 30 years in anonymity. There's a reason he was circumcised, a reason he was baptized, a reason he taught and healed. And um, you know, it's not just the, the trailer to the to the real you know the real action on the cross. Um, and I think you can see his work in all three offices in in his his time on earth you know it's not as if you know his priestly work is about his death and his kingly work about his resurrection or something like he's always working as prophet priest and king um at every moment of his you know his ministry um so it's i suppose the, that middle third the, the the humiliation of christ takes christ from uh from the cradle to the to the grave mm -hmm. to his burial not just the cross but his burial um and then when you turn to look at the exaltation, you know, the, the U bends upwards and we move resurrection, ascension, session. Um, again, often ignored his sitting down at the right hand of the Father mm. uh, and then his return in glory. And again, the, you know, Christ now is prophet, priest and king. You know, he's still active in those roles. Mm. Um, and I, again, I suspect that is his ongoing ministry is something that we are perhaps in danger of taking our, our eye off. Um, as if he's the resurrection was the end, as it were. Yeah, and I think I was reminded about that as I read your book, um, <clears throat> that we tend to think that the offices of prophet, priest and king come to their fulfillment in Christ and then when he goes to heaven, it's all over. Yeah. You just said that this is what your book so helpfully points out, that the three offices continue to function, but now in an exalted state. Yeah. He remains the prophet of his church as the head of the church. Yes his word by his serve through his ministers yeah remains the priest interceding for us ever interceding for us and then he remains king the head of the church and the ruler of the world and the universe and i think that's what's so helpful and the structures you know really lends itself to that showing that 
it doesn't all end with his humiliation. It actually continues into his exaltation. I think, you know, the point you made at the beginning that you, we've got to get his person. Uh, we, are, we need to understand his person correctly first before we can understand his work. Because if you don't get who he is as the God man, then you won't really appreciate what he's going to do as the God man in his mm -hmm. offices. And I think, again, that's been really helpful in the book, the way you've structured it in that regard. Um, so our Christology is is foundational to our soteriology, you know, to put it yeah. in theological terms that I would smile at. Say that's, that's what I'm referring to. The Americans talk in those terms, the Brits, you know, don't talk in those terms. Um, yeah, tell us uh, this hymn um, by um, Philip Bliss, Manus, yeah. what a name. I really love that in your book, that every chapter is a line from that hymn. Um, you have a lovely part at the very end of your book where you actually talk a little bit about Philip Bliss. Um, I don't mean yeah. to spoil it for readers, but do you want to give us a wee insight into what kind of a man he was? And yeah, sure. I mean, the, structuring the, the chapters around the hymn, I you know, just sort of came to it at some point. And I realised that the, the way that hymn worked and the you know the verses were uh, in many ways teasing out the material I've been I've been trying to uh, trying to cover in the book. So I, I I don't know loads about him, but I looked him up because you know I thought I ought to learn a little bit about him once once I'd stolen all his uh, his lines. Um, he he was a teacher for most of his life, a music teacher, um, and I think it was Moody that got hold of him. Uh, in his 30s and convinced him to become a you know an evangelist and particularly you know use his music in in evangelism um become a you know hymn writer and so in his in his sort of sort of early mid 30s he, he you know he, he turned to that full time um but um you know other than writing man of sorrows i think that you know the thing that's most striking about him really is it's <laughs> sadly is the end so he you know he was married and he and his wife were in a um crossing that forgive my pronunciation, but crossing the, I think it's called the Ashtubi, Ashtubula River, somewhere in Ohio anyway. Um, apologies to, to Ohioans. And um, the bridge collapsed uh, and this train plummeted into to the valley below and set on fire. Uh, and Bliss himself survived the fall uh, and, um, you know, was seen, you know, seen alive and, and well after the fall. But then he realised his wife hadn't escaped the carriage um, so he was last seen plunging back into the flames at the bottom of this valley to try and rescue his wife from the, you know, from the burning carriages. And um, that was it. Never seen again. And he was he was 39. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he sounds like an incredible guy. And, you know, one day to meet in glory. But um, yeah. Yeah. What what a fine character. And I, I didn't know about him, uh, but I, I, I love that him. We had it at a, our daughter's funeral at Layla's funeral, man. Mm -hmm borrows what I mean but uh always love to hear stories behind this the hymn or um yeah person who wrote it and I was very moved when you, you added that at the very end uh about Philip great um last few questions um was there a chapter you enjoyed writing the most was there a chapter you find hardest to write yeah they're probably the same chapter so um I the, the, or even a section of a chapter, to be honest, writing on um, writing on the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Um, I found that both the hardest 
and therefore also the most enjoyable because it took the most work and I, think I need to be the most careful I needed to do most reading consult with the wisest minds um and i think it, in part that's because it takes you to that to what you were talking about a moment ago that that you've got to keep your christology central in your soteriology so mm. so many so many kind of takes on that cry are i think at best careless with how they explain what's going on you know you get talk of the trinity being ripped apart or or even more softly but i still think unhelpfully you know the father totally ceasing to love his son mm. um you know um but at the same time as we said earlier in the conversation you know i, I believe penal substitutionary atonement is is right and biblical you know that sin is met righteously by god's wrath so so how you how you hold those things together doing you know full justice to the, the person of christ um, being careful with your doctrine of the Trinity, um, but also um, trying to describe, explain how um, he could be the, you know, the bearer of our sins. Um, yeah, took took a took, took a lot of work really. Uh, what what writers helped you in in that regard? Like um, I noticed that, that that's a chapter where you do reference quite a lot. You know, footnote. Yeah. Um, so who who was it that helped you really articulate that? from the past yeah so any chapter that's full of footnotes is the ones where i was most kind of most keen to be backed up by a you know an army of far wiser greater figures so um if i should just pick one it'd be turretin he, he deals with it in his institutes of elenctic theology and you know like 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 always in turretin it's not a particularly easy read but he's just so careful as he goes through affirming and denying various things um but you know he's not um he's not a poet is he Turretin? <laughs> so you, you go to other folk um i think it's goodwin who said it's me a slight misquote so apologies to thomas goodwin experts but thomas goodwin said something like god was never more pleased with his son than when he was m most angry with him um and it, it's those kind of you know i think that was from a sermon so he's trying to be pithy and, and give these one-liners but it's teasing out how that works um pink talks about you know, God's dual attitude towards his son um, in his person, but also in his, you know, in his, in his office. Um, I think in there I speak about the difference as Christ considered his person and Christ considered his profession, you know, as the, the one bearing our sins. Um, but yeah, I think Turretin, if you wanted to go one place for a, a really careful handling without falling off the horse either side into denying penal substitution or rupturing the Trinity, denying the love of the Father, the Son, um, Turretin is, is is a is a masterclass, really. Yeah, I mean that's certainly the richest and sort of deepest and uh, chapter in the book, and the one that stretches will stretch readers yeah. most. Also, one of the most profound. I remember um, Schilder in his three-volume work on the yeah. Passion of Christ. He has a section on the derelict cry, dereliction, and he said, you know, it it occurs in the dark. And there's a sense in which we must leave this yeah, as a mystery in the dark that we can never actually fully put all the light on this question. My God, why have you forsaken me? That we'll have to wait until eternity to find out exactly the depth yeah. of that. And maybe in eternity we'll never fully know. But um, I just thought that was a health, an interesting sort of use of the darkness it's obviously a symbol of the judgment that's falling but yeah. he brings in this element there's there's also a sense in which we don't see christ when he calls that out you know we uh, he 
hidden from us, as he calls it out. And there's a sense in which, yeah, the actual depth of the meaning of it is hidden from us. If you'd mentioned that a year ago, that would have been really helpful. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> and said, look, at this point, let's just say it was in the dark. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's short in the chapter. The editor would have been over the moon. Um, <laughs> I, I, there is something there, isn't there? And the, you know, the temptation is to think that the, you know, there are mysteries in the Christian life: the Trinity, the person of Christ, predestination, sovereignty, and responsibility. But actually, the cross, as evangelicals, we've got that down. You know, Jesus, Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins, as if that's somehow an easy thing. Um, but, but as soon as you start thinking and diving deeper, that there's there's mystery there. And I think again, my my tribe to use the word that we're all meant to use at the moment you know those of us who've really defended penal substitution we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that we've comprehended it um or can explain it all or it you know have, have, have got the mechanism down or something um mm. i think hugh martin in his book on the atonement ends one of his chapters saying you know that, that you know, the church grows weak and weary in her in her spiritual life when she thinks there's no more to um what's the quote no, no more to delve into in the cross or something like that again horrible misquote but um you know it's not an easy doctrine that you can tidy away yeah I, I love that quote by hugh martin it's similar to what we're saying and um but i think you know mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics yeah. And, and yeah and once we try to remove that element we really are a becoming presumptuous and um b actually looking at it quite superficially then you know not yeah. really depths that's there well, John Day, I think this church, uh, this um, book has, will be a real service to the church, as was your other one, Covenants Made Simple. I would encourage all our listeners to uh, get both of those books, but um, especially look out for John Day's latest one, Man of Sorrows, King of Glory, coming out by uh, Crossway in June. And I think what's great about it is you've you've made some of the deep, meaty theological books on the atonement. You've written one that's really accessible for everyday Christians and anyone can read this book and they'll be stretched but they'll um they'll also be really uh, encouraged and enriched and fed well so thank you for serving the church well with that and uh, we hope at the bookstore we'll give it a good plug um, <laughs> so, so does my wife um, once, thanks very much <laughs> once you once you send the promotion check for us we'll give it a good plug yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, it's been great to see you again, Jonte. Hope you're you too, John. down the south coast in some mansion on the uh, south coast of England. Goes well. Hope it's a restful time. And uh, we wish you a blessing on your ministry back up in Leeds as well. Thanks. Yeah. And you too. Look forward to seeing you soon.